on today's episode. There is something lyrical about what we do in the museum. We connect people to objects and to stories, and I think a good poem connects you to this other self. For the period that you're reading a poem, you're transported into this other I. And that kind of time travel, as I call it, is really important. The poem is the most efficient form of that time travel, and I think our museum does another version of that. You go back and suddenly you can see history because it can feel far away. And to bring it present is something that I love in poetry, I love in the museums, and I love the ways that poets make meaning, they make metaphor, they make these kinds of connections. And I think that's what happens in a museum between a visitor and an object. I'm your host, Greg Fentness. Stay tuned. This is One Big Question. Kevin Young is the Andrew W. Mellon Director of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. He is an acclaimed poet, having authored 12 books of era-defining poetry that are moving, lyrical, and often deeply innovative, with bold juxtapositions and unexpected deconstructions of form and style. He is also the New Yorker's poetry editor and the host of the Poetry Podcast. Director Young has written celebrated works of nonfiction, including the award-winning Bunk, The Rise of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post-Facts, and Fake News, and The Gray Album on the Blackness of Blackness. And he has also edited nine books, including the anthology African American Poetry, 250 Years of Struggle and Song. From 2005 to 2016, Director Young was curator of Emory's very own Raymond Donowski Poetry Library, which is our world-class collection of rare and modern poetry. He served as Emory's curator of literary collections, making tremendous contributions in growing the collections at Emory Stuart A. Rose Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library. It's an honor for me to talk with him today at the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture here on the majestic National Mall in the heart of Washington, D.C. Director Young, thank you for taking time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me. Given the scope of your accomplishments and your many titles and roles, and the important history and stories you tell in this museum, we could take this conversation in so many different directions. But I want to begin with a question about balance and creativity in your life as an artist, scholar, and curator. How do you find room in your mind, in your heart, and on your calendar to curate this magnificent museum, but also to express yourself as a poet, to edit books as well as poetry for The New Yorker? How do you balance all of these things and continue to approach each one with care, energy, and imagination? Uh, I see you saved the big question for up front. Um, that's a great question. I think for me, curiosity is key. Uh, what I love about the museum and, and the work I did at Emory, in fact, uh, as a curator or as a director of a museum, every day is a little different. You see new things, you discover new things. And especially at this museum, I find that if I go on a tour or take a tour or lead a tour, I end up discovering something. A case in point, we have an Afrofuturism show up right now. 
And um, I remember I was leading someone through the galleries on slavery and freedom, which are really at the heart and the the literal bottom of the museum. You descend in back in time and start there. And I was winding my way, and there's a part on slavery in New York, and I was looking at a case, and I realized that these beautiful little beads that arranged just so were a cosmogram, a, a image of the universe that an enslaved person had created. And I say that to say, not only did I discover that, I had written about that very idea in the Gray album. When I was thinking about that, I think that came out in 2012. And so here I am, you know, 10 years later, looking at the very thing I had written about. I had read about it. I had, you know, in a way dreamed it. And here we are standing there. And that discovery for me not only connected me to the hopes and aspirations and the the fierce maintaining of one's ideas of the stars across an almost unimaginable, but also in our museum, I think, retrieved sense of what the enslaved experienced. But at the same time, I, I was thinking about the stars and thinking about the ways that we were also talking about that in Afrofuturism. That's means that Afrofuturism is already in the museum. It was there in this enslaved person or persons creating this world. And for me, that inspires me to do more and to do other things. It shows me the ways that the past is still alive. And that, I think, animates all the work that you mentioned. For me, those kind of things aren't as separate as they might sound. There is something lyrical about what we do in the museum. We, I think connect people to objects um, and to stories. And I think a good poem connects you to this other self. You know, you, for the period that you're reading a poem, are someone else. You're transported into this other I. And um, that kind of time travel, as I call it, is really important. It's, the poem is the most efficient form of that time travel. And I think our museum does another version of that. You go back and suddenly you can see, because it can feel far away history. And to bring it present is something that I love in poetry. I love in the museums. And I love the ways that you know poets make meaning. They make metaphor. They make these kinds of connections. And I think that's what happens in the museum between a visitor and an object, a visitor and each other. I mean, people see themselves and also each other in the museum. But it also connects us with the past and the future. And, and that's something I see every day. And I, I hope I can find in the work I do. Well, and throughout your career, you've defined yourself through both your own art and your ability to interpret, cultivate, and shed light on the works of others. What is it like to shift between those mindset, your, your art and your creativity, and those of others, especially as you're thinking about new exhibits here? You know, Kevin Young, the poet, Kevin Young, the scholar, but also Kevin Young, a curator of this, this museum. Well, luckily, I have a a lot of great curators here who do a lot of that work. But I think having been a curator for a long time at Emory, I really learned that curation is about collecting now what you think will be important in the future. It isn't just waiting and waiting for what you absolutely know is great. Emory was fortunate to have terrific collections of older material. But I think what one of the things we did well is say, you know, this movement is important. This moment is important. And that's the kind of energy that I learned when I left from Emory and went to the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. And one of the things we really did is is think about 
what I call, you know, home to Harlem, trying to bring home those archives of people like James Baldwin, which was underway, but like I got the pleasure of being there when it was processed and open. But Sonny Rollins, both of them who grew up going to what's now the Schomburg Center, the, the original library, and, and, you know, that opened up their world. And so how could we not? Harry Belafonte, which was one of the last collections I got, was just so tremendous as a figure, of course, um, and has newly departed us. But he's so inspiring and got his start in the Schomburg Center. And so collecting that kind of home to Harlem material was really important. Ossie Davis and Ruby D, who also acted in the American Negro Theater, which is in the basement of the Schomburg. And so to come here, that same energy to me is really important to how do we collect the new and the now? Um, we've been in, as some would say, interesting times. How do you collect that? How do you preserve that? And so those are things that we're actively doing. But it isn't just us. I think the other thing we do as sort of leaders of thinking about this stuff is helping folks do what they're already doing, which is there's a lot of great legacy museums who've been doing this for far longer than we have. How do we connect with them? And we have a whole division that that's their job. And so I think that's what's really important as we move forward is, is we're connected in an ecosystem and a, and a long tradition, a legacy of retaining this material. And coming to the museum, I was struck to learn that 70% of our original collection was given to us. And that kind of stewardship is so important. And to get back to your question, you know, that kind of stewardship, I always felt, it, it, you know, loving poetry, writing poetry doesn't mean just writing your own poetry. It means also lifting up poetry as a whole field. How do you do that? And especially doing the African-American poetry anthology, 250 years of struggle and song, it kind of, in a way, coalesced a lot of what I was thinking that both I experienced at the Schomburg, which had many of the books, but also coming here was kind of an ethos of, let's say we've been here and, and shine a light on the centrality of African-American experience. Uh, that was true in poetry. That's true in the museum. And I think it's really important part of what I enjoy as an editor, as a former curator, and as a director. I want to come back to today and your plans going forward, but let's take a step back in time and just say a little bit about your work at Emory University as a teacher and as a curator and what role Emory had in the arc of your, your career. Well, Emory was really crucial. Um, just personally, my father had passed away and, you know, it really had me rethink my priorities in my life and he was fairly young. And so it was one of those things where I was writing about him just because you have to. But I also was looking for something new, and being at Emory encapsulated that. And I started out, I think, in a very small way, doing a little bit of curating. And then by the end, I was mostly curating. And for me, the first collection I got was Lucille Clifton's collection. And she had picked my first book to be published. So here I was, sort of full circle, packing up her boxes, you know, 50 boxes of books, 50 boxes of papers. And that was just incredible for me to see that full circle moment. And there were many others like that 
at Emory. So it was a new beginning, but it was also this return. I was returning to the South where my parents had grown up, and that was really important. But also there was this connection to someone like Seamus Heaney, whose many of his papers are at Emory. And suddenly when I became literary curator, I was in charge of those papers in some sense and retrieving more of them and adding you know, other Irish poets. That was really something I treasured. And, and you know, what I learned there is, I, is the way that students, for instance, really connect with those immediate objects. Seeing the first edition of Leaves of Grass, Walt Whitman, and knowing that he had printed those pages himself, and they were, could hold it and touch it, was really powerful. And that immediacy of experience really changed me, and it changed my writing. I was always writing about archives and thinking about them, but I saw their immediate power in the way that they shouldn't be locked away. And I think Emory was really terrific at providing open access. All you needed was an ID to see material. Uh, and students made use of it, and they felt very much ownership over that. And so moving from Emory to public institutions like the Schomburg was easier than it sounds in the sense that it prepared me for that, and it really fit my ethos. You know, I grew up going to libraries, you know, taking out too many books, maybe hitting the limit if they had a limit for how many books you could take out in a week. And so then to experience archives as this intimate place, a place of learning, but also an open place that are for everyone. Why get this material unless you're going to share it? It's not to be hoarded. It's to be held and, and shared. That really began for me a more concrete way at Emory. Well, that's why the Rose Library and the collections in it, including the literary collections, are just so important to our educational mission, the scholarship that takes place, and just open to the public for interested scholars and others to see. So thank you for the work you did as part of the literary collections at Emory. Thanks. But let's now talk about the National Museum of African American History and Culture, this incredible collection that I know was many, many years in the making but has now become a destination. And uh, how many visitors a year uh, do you have at the museum? Well, this year we're expecting 2 million visitors. Um, you know, and that's just been incredible to see people return to the museum, you know, after pandemic and really embrace what we have to say and, and the stories that we tell. But you started as director uh, of this museum in the midst of a global pandemic. Uh, I can sympathize with you on <laughs> that, uh, that timing. But also a time soon after George Floyd's murder in May of 2020. What was it like starting this role that is so central to the issues of race that we're, we're going to talk about? Well, I think it's um, an urgent moment. Uh, what I started saying is, you know, it isn't that it's unprecedented. It's actually a precedented time. A hundred years ago, almost exactly, there was a pandemic. There was racial unrest in the red summer of 1919. And so to help people sort of understand the connections to the past, I, that's one of our main goals. And so one of the shows that was going up then that we were working on and had been working on for years was Make Good the Promises, Reconstruction and Its Legacy. And those ideas of reconstruction, talking about this moment after the Civil War and its gains and losses for African Americans, its retributions, the start of the KKK, all of these kind of moments had these resonances in some of the legacy sections that we featured and some of the objects there. And that was really powerful, emblematic for me. And I began to think about what we have been calling living history. And that idea of living history 
names our campaign that we're in. We're in a big $350 million campaign. But we're also, you know, thinking about living history in the museum. How do we tell the story of now? How do we people how do we help people understand that there's this connection? Do you feel the museum is helping people understand that history and how it has led to our present moment when it comes to race in America? Yes, very much. I think people connect, they see themselves, but they also see each other in ways that we don't always have a forum for. Um, We have a contemplative court after you go through the three floors of the history galleries. And I'm always struck by people's calmness in this moment, but also their connection, their need for that. You know, if we hadn't built that, we would have missed something. But again, going back to this reconstruction show, Make Good the Promises, we had a response area that our terrific education team created where people filled out a card that talked about how they would reconstruct America. And those responses are really moving, about 11,000 of them, as I recall. And just looking through them, I was always blown away, you know, and I, I don't know, I don't always write things down in a museum, you know, I'm like, okay, sure. There it was, and I was like, we gotta have this all the time because people are dying to connect and they're dying to talk about what they've seen and connect to that history that's right in front of them and all around them and that they're living through. So it's just wonderful. There are two million people coming through the museum every every year, but there are still a lot of Americans that may not come to the museum but want to learn from it. So why don't you say a little bit about the education efforts of the museum to spread the stories that are told here and the history here to to more Americans? Well, like a lot of folks, we had to switch online in a day, you know, and this was right before I joined, but they did a great job at their education department to do that, you know, especially K through 12. But we also started a thing called the Searchable Museum, which launched in fall of 2021 and has had millions of views on its pages. We've had visitors from over 100 countries, I think, and, and over 50, all 50 states. And I think that's really important because we have to take the museum beyond its four walls. And what the Searchable Museum does is we at first started with slavery and freedom, one of the bedrocks of the museum. And, you know, it isn't as simple as translating what you've already done. You have to really rethink and re-curate, if you will. So that took a process. But there was also an opportunity online that we can show you things that you can't see in the museum. For instance, we did a 3D scan of the inside of a slave cabin from Edisto Island, South Carolina. And so you can see that inside in ways you can't in person. I think that's really important. We had to provide what I call that same soaring feeling that the museum provides. How do you do that? And I think its success is due to the crack team who've worked on it, making it feel that way. Um, Then we went upstairs and did an exhibition called Making Way Out of No Way. We didn't want to just march up the museum. We really wanted to think about it. We have an Afrofuturism digital exhibition now. And I think what that does is help people realize that Again, history is all around them. It's something they are living through, but also that they can make. And that digital experience, which we found people you know, often use a QR code and go right there while they're waiting in line, while they're in the museum, people make use of that because they want to learn more and dive deeper, and they can take a little bit of history home with them. 
So you, you've mentioned the exhibits, Afrofuturism. As you begin to think about making decisions on what stories to tell and what type of exhibits to have about African-American culture and history, what's your thought process? How do you set your goals about what you want to achieve with a, with a special exhibition? Well, a lot of it is, you know, stories that we tell some of but want to tell more of. Uh, Afrofuturism was always in the museum. Um, we have the mothership from Parliament Funkadelic upstairs. And so to see that bad boy is amazing. And uh, we knew that would be central. But again, there's Afrofuturism in the slavery and freedom section and the cosmogram I mentioned. So how do we help people connect from the cosmogram to the mothership? And I think Afrofuturism is a perfect example of how we connect those dots for people. And we take them on a trip from Africa and its notions of cosmograms and, and, and astronomy through Benjamin Banneker, who's also in other parts of the museum, and his almanac, his writing to Jefferson on behalf of the rights of African Americans, but also his making of Washington, D.C. So here we are, uh, him helping survey this area. He's that person who takes us from the ground to the stars. And there's many examples of that in the show. And I think it's just a chance in these bigger changing gallery opportunities, the Bank of America Changing Gallery, where we have these shows, to explore a little more. Reconstruction is a great example. And some of the things we have planned are also doing that. And returning to thinking about, for instance, slavery and the work we do around slavery, not just as a past thing, but also working with the Slavery Rex Project, which is based here, but a global effort that thinks about, you know, how do we rescue some of this information in slave ships at the bottom of the ocean? How do we raise not just objects from them, some of which you can see from the middle passage in our museum, but also the information and, and in a way, the spirits that we need to both rescue and heal. And so how do we do that? And that's some of what's going to be in the next show and the Changing Galleries in Slavery's Wake next year. Look forward to look forward to seeing it uh, once it's open. So, Director Young, you've been at the Smithsonian for a couple of years now. What are your hopes and ambitions for the future of the National Museum of African American History and Culture? Well, I, I think we are not only part of the conversation, but I hope we can help lead it in new ways. Uh, the Slavery Rex Project is a great example. And helping people understand African American history is American history, and it's central to the telling of it. But I also think there's that aspect of joy that we always want to convey. And, you know, as a poet, the my fellow poet, Toy Derricott, has the beautiful line, joy is an act of resistance. And this idea of joy in the museum is there. You know, it's a story of not just tragedy, but triumph. It's a story of how people made a way out of no way. Um, my grandmother just turned 100 years old. And I think a lot about what she saw and the ways that she's, in many ways, was closer to emancipation. And her father was two and was born just after slavery, and his parents were slaves. That connection to me is so visceral and a bloodline. And I, it's a small part of this overall wish to help people understand that history isn't far away. You know, and that enslavement in the United States is not that far away. And so how do we kind of wrestle with that legacy and be honest about it? And that's something the museum is dedicated to, but also, again, dedicated to that kind of celebration and singing Stevie Wonder's version of Happy Birthday to You is, is another part of that joy we try to tell in the museum. Well, the museum does a tremendous job doing exactly that. 
Well, Director Young, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>